Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, joined this week by Craig Marks and Rob Tannenbaum, authors of I Want My MTV, the uncensored story of the music video revolution. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Je- Jeff, you are way more excited about book <laughs> that book than, than we are. I, I can't match that's only that the level intro. of exclamation. And can you guys introduce yourself so people know who's talking at, at what point? This is Craig Marks. Uh, and this is... Rob, uh, I'm the the one without the uh, lisp and the southern accent. And I'm the handsome one. Before we get to the book, uh, where did you guys come from before you wrote this book? What what have you done until book? Well, Craig and I worked together at uh, Blender Magazine, where he was my boss, uh, a a job he continued to function in during our writing of the book. Uh, And before that, I wrote for GQ, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, uh, basically whoever would publish me. And I edited Spin Magazine for during the 90s and went to Blender and then uh, edited Billboard for a year and now have a website called Pop Dust. You guys both have kind of a history in writing about music. Can you describe the book a little? Sure. Uh, the book is told in the form of an oral history, which is a, uh, a book format we are big fans of. Uh, it allowed us to pack in uh, interviews with 400 different people. And it tells the story of the creation, near failure, and global conquest of MTV, all in the span of 11 years, from 1981 to 1992. At what point in the process, was it at its very inception that you decided this book was going to be an oral history? We knew that from, we, we started out wanting to write an oral history almost, and we were shopping around for subjects a little bit, and uh, someone from the publishing company wanted to do an MTV book, and that seemed like a great idea for an oral history. So you guys had the idea for the format first. We, you know, when we were editing Blender, we did oral histories there. We just loved that format as a way of telling stories, and we also knew, as people who've interviewed musicians, who some of whom are smart and many of whom aren't, they're smart or not, they're all pretty good storytellers, and especially... Um, stories from the 80s, you know, uh, that are cocaine-fueled and uh, where the artists have some distance and they can kind of remember it. And uh, so we, we knew that it would be a good group of uh, executives and musicians and directors and producers to tell the story. And we wanted to get out of their way and let them tell it. Essentially, it was backwards constructed from the question of how can we meet Billy Idol. One reason I have this podcast is because I, to interview people I want to talk to. Like, I read this book. I loved it. I tweeted at you guys. Here we are talking. Is that how you arrived at writing this sub, writing about this subject? Not really, no. <laughs> Although we, we do have an abiding and unhealthy fascination with uh, the ephemeral pop music of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have gone to war with the uh, the rock critical canon that the 60s is the magnificent era of artistic accomplishment and the 80s was just a bunch of uh, English dudes with weird haircuts. We, we, we really are big champions, especially of the 80s and the early 90s. And of, and of the visual aspect of pop music. And MTV was the greatest purveyor of that. Did you guys grow up in the 80s? Is that possibly why? 70s the, and 80s. The 1880s. Because I, I grew up in the 90s, and I would never make the argument that uh, 90s was the apex of pop music. So it, nor, not, nor should you. It, it's not totally tied to that. Well, what's the case for the 80s, then? MTV is at the center of it. Uh, I think the pop is a good part of it, too. Yep. Sort of the, the, not, if not the exact founding, then certainly the flourishing, the first flourishing of hip-hop. Hair metal. Drum uh, machines. Yeah. I thought New wave. Uh, Mark's mother bro, from, is that, am I saying his name right? Uh, Mother's Bow, yeah. Mother's Bow. I never knew how to say that. Uh, from Devo, he made an excellent point in the book about how uh, the term one-hit wonder is usually centered around the 80s because MTV kind of forced bands to, like, make a big splash immediately, and that bands... Or, or gave bands the chance to make a big splash right. immediately. But maybe bands didn't have enough as much time to kind of figure themselves out and... Well, you know, that, that's, a, that's a kind of a critique that certain people use against pop music all the time, that it's, um, it's, it's centered around people who aren't, don't have their chops together, they haven't taken their show on the road, they're not real musicians, they're just flash in the pans. And, you know, I don't, uh, speaking for Rob, I think we love all that part of pop music. We like the one-hit wonders. We don't think that there's anything lesser about them, especially as a listener when you're listening to just songs and you're watching videos. You know, you're not necessarily investing long-term in The Grateful Dead. You're enjoying, you know, a song by A Flock of Seagulls, and there ain't nothing wrong with that. 
the best Buggles song is as good as the best Beatles song. Oh. Now, the 10th the best Buggles song <laughs> is not as good as the 10th best Beatles song. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I guess it kind of is, like, for people that are into music to get into, like, well, this band wasn't, didn't, wasn't as good, these guys aren't as talented... Uh, but when you're actually just listening to the music, you know, well, what's it matter how many other good songs? You know, what's interesting too is that two things that are that are considered disgraced now or then. One, one is MTV, everyone hates MTV now, or you know, except for the people who watch it, except for the overwhelming number of kids who watch it. But MTV is a bad rap now because they've turned away from music videos and people think it's a cesspool. So one part that was great about this book was that we got to write about the founding of MTV, and it was very much like any kind of cool startup, except it was even more successful than the coolest startup. But they had all the same problems, and it was all formed by 20-something guys, mostly guys, who had no background at all in television and, and came up with this idea of starting a video network when videos didn't even exist for the most part. So it was a pretty profound chance that they took. And 80s music also... Um, which, you know, I think most smart people now realize is, is pretty pleasurable, if not great. But it, it also had been somewhat in critical disfavor. And so for us to be able to go back and, and, and um, account for that and write about in some way how great it was was a, a great way to resurrect two disgraced topics in a way. 80s music's kind of making a comeback, too. Uh, you can hear the influence of 80s music on, in today's popular music way more than you can hear 90s music with the electronica and the synths and that kind of thing. Well, people love to dance. Yeah, yeah. People, people like to dance. Nostalgia uh, arrives in 20-year cycles. That more or less starts with Happy Days, uh, which was, as far as I know, the, the first TV show based on nostalgia. It was about the 50s, and it debuted in 1970. And it makes sense from a marketing standpoint because the, the, the music or the culture that you feel most emotionally attached to is when you're 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. Then 20 years later, when you're in your mid-30s, you have disposable income and everyone wants to market to you. So they're using the songs of your adolescence to try to sell you automobiles. So when you guys started this book, day one, we're going to write an oral history of MTV. How do you even get started? Because... This is a very thorough. I'm holding it in my hands, like people can see it. It's, it's a nice it's, way to put it. It's it is, huge. It's it's huge, but it, it is thorough. Like every aspect of MTV is a chapter. Yo, MTV Raps. That's a chapter. Remote Control. That's a chapter. Uh, you know, the business side, the advertising side. All these things are covered. It's it, it's very thorough. You will have no questions about the history of MTV when you're done reading this book. So, how do you even get started on that? How do you plan? We we went to lunch. I think that it was, was a the, long lunch. Yeah. You put together a wish list of artists that you want to interview you, we I don't think we either of us knew I think we kind of knew the directors were going to be an important part of it I don't think we knew how important the producers were mm -hmm. which because they knew they they know where the bodies are buried they, and they know mm -hmm. where all the yeah. they, they have the coke dealers on their pagers and stuff um, then there's video extras who are a great part of the book you know Tony Catanes of the world and the women in wish and, something yeah, wish, wish, Foley. wish Foley yeah my favorite quote in the book was wish Foley saying that Weird Al hit on her at the VMAs <laughs> one year. I, it was the highlight of the whole... The VMAs is all about. Yeah. Hitting on Wish Foley. Yeah, by Weird Al. Um, and the record executives. And then, you know, there is a business story at the heart of this, too. It's about this network that people didn't think would work and made everyone millions, you know, and continues to mint money. So, there, you know, it's the story. And if you're writing a history of MTV for 10 years, um, you're essentially writing about any music video that made any impression on you or the world for a 10-year period. It's a lot of ground to cover. And this was the prime, the golden era of music videos, too. That's what I, we think. Our argument in the book is that the uh, golden era of music videos begins in 81 when MTV launches and ends in 1992. Now, that doesn't mean that we think there were no great music videos after 92. There were. But in 92, the real world debuts on MTV, and the network begins their inexorable march away from music videos and into reality programming. The only reason that music videos were created was because MTV was airing them. So once they began not airing them, 
uh, record companies began receding from making music videos, and, and the quality just begins to erode. The other thing about uh, how thorough the book is is just the variety of people that you talk to, like you already said, the producers and the artists and all these different type of people. When you're interviewing these people, do you interview an artist like, I don't know, Tom Petty or Van Halen or someone like that? Well, Eddie wasn't in the book, right? Right. But David, Michael were, Anthony was. Michael Anthony made it. <laughs> there, in, in a lot of cases, we didn't get the singer, but we got the bass player <laughs> the or the drummer. Uh, yeah. But when you're talking to uh, an artist or you're talking to a producer, is it, do you have to have two different strategies for interviewing them? Are they different types of interviews? Well, Petty, you know, like someone like Petty, it's just you just hope you have a lot of time because you have a lot of videos to cover. And you never know where, like, the good story is going to come or where the great quote is going to come. You just kind of go on a fishing expedition. But you do, you know, you have to be prepared and you have to kind of know what you're looking for. You have to you have to hope that you found a little trace of a story somewhere and you can ask him about it and then draw it out of him. And, you know, interviewing directors, which I did a lot of, as did Rob, was very difficult because you had to watch... I mean, they, they worked like crazy back then. In the early 80s, uh, a director like Russell Mulcahy, who did uh, Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf, he would do easily a video a month, sometimes more. So if you're asking, interviewing him about his, you know, all the famous videos he did between 81 and 87, that's like 100 videos. So you really have to, like, do a lot of work to prepare for those. Some people, like, you know, Wish or the girls from Addicted, who were the stars of Addicted to Love, you're kind of just asking about one particular moment right. in their life, it's a little it's a little easier. Although I have to say, I'm I, I'm not exactly sure I agree with your use of the word work. Uh, sitting yeah. and watching Huey Lewis videos all day is is that work technically or probably not? Uh, that's what I would be doing anyway. But for some of these people that come up again and again through the book, like Tom Petty's in here a lot, and a lot of the executives too, like I don't know Bob Pittman or someone, is that one interview you sat down with them? You covered everything. Uh, with Bob Pittman, no. There were a few interviews with Les Garland and John Sykes. Some of the founding executives of MTV, there were multiple interviews. With the artists, I mean, unless we were, unless we had a follow-up question that we could actually get through to them for, I would say almost always it was one interview. Yeah, you know, for instance, Janet Jackson, I had 20 minutes on the phone. And at, at the 20-minute mark, her representative uh, uh, broke into the mm -hmm. phone call and said, uh, okay, we need to wrap it up. Tony Katana had as much time as I needed, it turns out, <laughs> surprisingly. Billy, Billy Squire sat in my living room for three and a half hours, and I more or less had to kick him out. Was there anyone who you didn't expect to get a lot of good stories from that turned out to be have all these tales from the old days? Was there anyone that surprised you? I'm sure there is. Well, I don't, you know, I mean, I mean this isn't exactly the, the answer to your question, but like, Billy Joel was a great interview. He was just funny. He's not someone and I generally associate with MTV. He was funny and pissy and bitter and <laughs> ribald and, you know, just like has no reason to pull any punches. And he thought he looked like a douchebag, if I can say that, during mm -hmm. certain videos. And he said it. And he just didn't mind telling me what he thought. And he found the whole era kind of ridiculous. But he also knew that he profited greatly from those videos. And he was a huge staple of MTV. My favorite interview was uh, with Doc McGee, who managed Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, and Skid Row. Uh, and he had some absurd stories to tell, including that he used to call MTV and say, stop playing our videos. If you don't stop playing our videos, I'm not going to send you another one because you're making my bands overexposed. Sinead O'Connor was a was also a very yeah. salty interview. Yep. Oh, yeah, you kind of got that. She, uh, she has still some axes to grind, though, because... Sinead O'Connor, the story with her was that I guess she felt that she didn't, that MTV wasn't playing her because she didn't look the part. She didn't, uh, she didn't have the image. You, when, when you talk to people with access to grind, it can be, you know, a treasure for an interviewer. I, I found her hysterically funny. And throughout my interview with her, she was screaming at one of her kids <laughs> who I wanted to borrow the car or something like that. It was this incredible mix of. Uh, talking about art and culture, and then the mundane of, no, Sheila, the keys are on the floor right. in the den. I, I think actually she could be a stand-up comedian. When That's I interviewed Bobby Brown of uh, New Edition and Whitney Houston fame, he uh, didn't realize what the interview was for and, and demanded to get paid prior to the interview. And, and when he found out he wasn't getting paid, he wasn't very happy. Uh, and he didn't remember anything, you know, including like his kids' names. So that was a difficult interview. You guys have, I mean, through Blender and Spin, you've had, I'm sure you've had all these opportunities to interview many, many great musicians over the years, but this is almost all of them. Was there someone you were really excited to get to talk to that you hadn't had a chance to interview before? For the book, the people I was most excited about weren't the rock stars or even the, the big-name directors. 
it was really the little people. And by little people, I don't mean midgets, although... It, There's a wonderful midget story in there. <laughs> there, are, yeah. there are a lot of midget stories. The, the book is basically midget stories and cocaine stories with an occasional story about a midget on cocaine. Uh, but, uh, for instance, people have asked us, are we upset that Madonna isn't in the book? We couldn't get an interview with her. Uh, we would have loved to. But Madonna's story is pretty well told. That's true, yeah. Uh, the woman who played the teacher in Van Halen's Hot for Teacher video, she hasn't been heard from much. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the sort of person I wanted to hear about because this was a peak moment in her life. It wasn't just another in a series of fantastical events that, that is, is their life narrative, which is true if you're a rock star. This is the one thing that she's famous for. How long did it take you guys to do 400 interviews? How long were you working on this book? Only 18 months. Really? Yeah. I would have guessed way higher. It's a, it was a pretty compact schedule. The, the book uh, coincided with the 30th anniversary of MTV, which was more or less, which was August 1st, 2011. I thought that it, was our deadline. I thought an interesting thing that someone in the book brought up was that uh, people don't generally care about the anniversaries of MTV because the audience for MTV is so young, and they blew it out for maybe their 10th anniversary or their 15th anniversary. Got no ratings, and the twentieth anniversary just passed without being mentioned. Right. They, 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 you know, they would rather no one notice their birthdays that or anniversaries because they don't, they don't want anyone to. They're Charlie Brown. They don't want to ever age because so, their audience has to stay the same age. It always has to stay fourteen. So nuts and bolts wise, you've got all these interviews. You have these hours and hours of recordings and notes. Were you writing as you were interviewing? Uh, somewhat. I, I, I found that as we were interviewing. Uh, a, a certain kind of arc began to occur to me uh, when I was interviewing Trevor Horn from The Buggles, who, who wrote the song Video Killed the Radio Star. Which is the first, this is like the most well-known piece of trivia, I think. It's <laughs> the first song MTV played. Everybody knows. And, and P.S., every time we do a, a, a radio interview... It starts with us having to listen to 45 seconds of video. So sick of hearing that song. But when I was interviewing Trevor Horn, he told this uh, anecdote about meeting uh, an illustrious British politician. And uh, Horn says that the politician said to him, oh, I know you. You're that video killed the radio star guy. And Horn said, and I thought to myself, uh, yes, I am, mate, and they'll remember me long after you're dead. And as soon as he said that, I knew that was the last line of the book. Uh, did that come up often where you hear someone say something and you're like, that's going in the book? Oh, yeah. 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 It, 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 one, of the, one of the pleasures of the book, of working on the book, was how much people enjoyed talking about this stuff. You know, they, they really, really loved, even those who, at the time, like when I interviewed um, Jonathan Cain from Journey, Mm-hmm. who says to this day still, if you've ever seen the Separate Ways video, it's uh, one of the worst videos of all time, which he'll gladly admit, where he plays the air keyboard. Um, so he says uh, uh, whenever he meets someone, no matter how big a fan of Journey they are, they always mention that video as being the worst video, and he's so sick of it. But still, even he and other kind of casualties of the MTV era have real ardor for the subject. And some think about it fondly, like it was, you know, Boy George and Duran Duran just, you know, they would love to talk about MTV and the effect it had in the videos. And then some talk about it really bitterly. MTV sucked. It ruined my life. You know, Billy Squire, other people. Billy Squire was the one. He obviously, I know this, this, I know the stroke. And he is the one that was in the worst music video of all time, correct? That's yep. right. Which it, I was not familiar with. I actually put down the book to go look up the video because everyone was really railing on it, including him. What's that, what is the name of that song? Rock, Rock Me Tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he taught, I mean, this is almost, I mean, the way he portrays it anyway is kind of tragic. It sounds like he speaks about it like it ruined his life. Well, you know, it, the, it the, certainly ruined his career. Yeah. The, I mean, it's, and it speaks to the enormous influence in the 1980s of MTV. I mean, uh, without sounding too cliche, it was Facebook and, you know, Twitter and, and cable TV all rolled into one. It was, if you were a kid in America in 1980s, and you at all cared about anything, you were watching MTV. And all your friends were, too. If you were wired for cable, you were watching MTV, and you were all getting the same kind of cultural and musical information at the same time. And that was profound. That was like, that ha- and that hasn't happened since, really, where everyone was kind of gathered around the same device at the same time, you know, with, with it all being pushed to you, and you didn't have much choice in it. Yeah, one quote that stands out to me is someone saying, I forget who, that MTV was the last mass media channel to reach people. I'm, I'm messing up the quote. I mean, if you think, you know, I, uh, a year ago I went to uh, the new um, 
Meadowlands to see Bon Jovi play. Now, there's no, there's no, lo- there's no logical reason I should be there, but there's no logical reason that Bon Jovi should be, even in New Jersey, selling out an 80,000-seat stadium. But it's really because of MTV. Yeah, and I think... And Duran Duran just played the Garden, you know, sorry to interrupt, like, no, you know, no. three months ago. And why would Duran Duran play Madison Square Garden in 2012? It's because they were on MTV in 1983 and 4. And and being on MTV imprinted you in the minds of a generation uh, the way being on radio didn't. I think someone in The Point made this book, because I didn't think of this, or I heard it somewhere, that uh, the only bands that can still tour like that are all the MTV I think we made that point. That was was pretty much us, yeah. Self-aggrandizing point. Well, look look at the bands from the 70s, or uh, mid to late 70s. Foreigner, uh, an absolutely huge radio band. They got as much airplay in their day as Duran Duran did in the 80s. Foreigner probably had more radio airplay, but Duran Duran had video play. And now Duran Duran can play Madison Square Garden. And, you know, where would Foreigner play? B.B. Uh, King's? Right, and Madonna. I mean, you know, it's a... Yeah, Madonna's still at the Super Bowl, even right. though she's not, maybe not the most relevant right. artist anymore. And that's Prince. not to say that the Who... Right, Prince, these are, you know, it's the acts who really ascended at the same time, even Run DMC, the same time MTV did, that, you know, as long as they kind of kept at it, R.E.M., even uh, you know you too. I believe George Michael actually played Madison Square Garden last right. year, and I because I remember seeing the ad for it and thinking, "Wow, George Michael can play Madison Square Garden." You know, John yeah. Lack, who came up with the idea for MTV, you know, his his radio with pictures was his sort of uh, summation of what MTV was going to be, and and it, it's a really potent combination. Dave Kendall from 120 Minutes, which I watched. Oh, a lot. I'm Dave Kendall. <laughs> I used to love 120 Minutes, and uh, he makes the point that uh, MTV's breakthrough wasn't uh, so much cultural as it was technological. It was just that cable TV was this new thing and there could be niche programming. And I think kind of implies that they were just in the right place at the right time. Is, do you guys agree with that? Well, cable was just starting to happen when MTV launched. Uh, I think there were only two cable networks that were broadcasting. Uh, that was HBO and CNN. Uh, and MTV, uh, MTV was different from them because... CNN was working on expanding an already existing plan. So the idea is sometimes the networks show news. Let's show news all day long. Sometimes the networks show movies. So HBO was going to show movies all day long. But MTV was uh, based on a product that barely existed. Really only in Europe. And John Lack went to Europe and saw these music clips. And then there were other people here in the States that were a couple people, Mike Nesmith, Todd Rundgren that were experimenting with them and making them. But, you know, it was really, yeah. like, super specialized. And, like, you know, there, maybe there were some local cable outlets, like public access that were playing a couple local videos. But but as Rob was saying, to, to imagine a whole network based on this medium, this new art form that barely existed, the, and that they could get from the record companies for free, right? So, like, in Internet parlance, if you can get all the content for free, like, if you're Huffington Post and you can get everything for free, basically, you've got a pretty good business plan. And the reason that MTV was able to get greenlit by uh, their parent company, which was Warner and Amex, who owned them, was because essentially they were getting all the they, – they thought they could convince the labels to give them these videos that were just sitting around that they'd already made for promotional use in Europe for free. And, which, you know, so maybe there were 150 of them and 30 of them were Rod Stewart videos. And then, and then they thought – we know we're going to sell records for these record companies. We're going, to, we're going to show them that when their video gets played in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there isn't another radio station within 100 miles of Tulsa, Oklahoma that's playing this Stray Cat song, right, or mm-hmm. this Greg Kinn song, when we show them that we're selling records, they're going to make more of these videos, and they're going to, need to, and they're going to give it to us for free because we've already got them trapped. We, we gave them the crack for, as a sample, and now they're going to come back and, and they're going to give us, you know, we're going to sell more crack. And that's exactly what happened. Which is a crazy, you know, scheme, and it worked. But the rec- it didn't last forever because the record companies eventually realized that they were spending all this money on videos that weren't necessarily getting played. Well, but they, you know, at a certain point, like in '85, I think it was, uh, the MTV, the label started getting a little pissed off. I mean, they've been they've been simmering and uh, since, but they realized that MTV, that Vi- MTV, especially once Viacom bought it. Uh, was a big business, like and and the business was formed on the backs of their videos, and they weren't see outside of increased record sales, which is not nothing. They weren't getting any money from these videos. Mm-hmm. Not like when radio plays a song, uh, the you know there's there's some money not necessarily to the label, but goes back to the publishing company for the airplay. 
But video, there was no royalties to be paid. So eventually, MTV had to make a deal with the labels to give them a little bit of money. In exchange, they basically put any competition or any possible competition for MTV out of business because they built into these deals exclusives where you, we'll pay you for your videos, we'll give you a few million dollars just in general for a pool to make your videos, and then we have a 60-day exclusive on, your, on all your product. So when Ted Turner tried to launch a rival n channel to MTV, which he did, he had no chance because MTV had most of the exclusives. And when anyone else tried to get, you know, when the Today Show tried to get an exclusive on a Billy Joel video, MTV would be able to say, no, you can't have that. I want to get back to something we started talking about earlier, but we got away from just the actual nuts and bolts of putting together this book. Just staying organized. I'm just imagining like a wall full of index paper, index cards. What does I want my MTV HQ look like? Oh boy, uh, there's a word processing system <laughs> called Scrivener. What is it? Big up to Scrivener. I always like no. I wanted to hear about like the tools you use to put this together. There's a, um, a software application called Scrivener, which is for people who are writing books, uh, and. I downloaded it and started using it sort of the, the day that I began turning from interviewing to actual writing, and I didn't know how to use the software. So I had some unfortunate accidents where I lost um, entire chapters of text. What does it do that Word doesn't? It allows you to structure material simultaneously in multiple chapters while also stacking unused work in areas where you can switch back and forth between them. It's, it's the equivalent of having uh, 45 different word windows open at the same time, but being able to see each one of them really easily. And they're kind of, inter they're kind of interlinked or linked. Yeah, and, and you can search. Um, instead of searching the entire hard drive of your computer, you search the entire folder that you've created in Scrivener. But the, the extra challenge was that it was two of us, you know, kind of mm -hmm. trying to work on it simultaneously. So Rob did most of the first pouring in of the material. I would funnel him my interviews, you know, once they were edited. He would, so, you know, we were working off of a chronology. So it wasn't just all loosey-goosey. So we knew, we knew when the book started and we knew when it finished. We knew that in advance. We knew that it was going to be the book was essentially going to be a chronological narrative. The hard part was that the you know the connection between a Sinead O'Connor video made in 1987 and a Slick Rick video is fairly thin, except that they happen to be made in 1987. So that's where it got really tricky to try to make sure that for a reader there was something that was connecting all these disparate stories. And then within the chronology, there were certain motifs that kept coming up. So, I, for instance, I noticed people kept talking about mullets and having mm -hmm. mullets. There isn't a mullet chapter, but within uh, w one of the chapters that focuses on the British New Wave, which is mostly about haircuts, then I would look through and see how many people talked about mullets, stack all the mullet quotes together, and you've got a little uh, mini, mini chapter within the chapter. Was there anyone you talked to at length that you were excited to talk to, but they just didn't fit into the narrative and they didn't make the cut for the book? There, there were probably half a uh, no, at least a dozen people yeah. uh, who ended up being a little boring or, or guarded, or uh, or it turned out that the stuff that they were were not boring about wasn't stuff we focused on. Yeah. There, there was a string of people that I interviewed all in a row, all of whom said, "Well, you know." I'll be happy to talk to you, but I am working on my own book. Mm -hmm. um, and and most, most of the time, including the VJs, who are, in fact, working on their own book, mm -hmm. um, the original VJs. Most They're of the still time, kind of a club. They're still like a, a clique. Yeah, they still yeah. do satellite radio together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're all working on a book together? Right. Yeah, the four, you know, JJ is dead, but Martha, Alan, uh, Nina, and Mark, Mark is they're the, all working yeah. on a book together. When I, but I interviewed Ola Ray, who was the girl in Thriller. Mm -hmm. And she was working on a book, and she's the only person who actually wouldn't tell me anything about the thing I wanted to know about. So I, I'm I'm gonna bet you how much do, I, I'll I, I'm taking. You name the amount. I'm betting that Ola Ray's book, book does not Maybe come out in our lifetime. How, what, what what's the wager? I think that's a, I'll, I'll give that one to you. Mm -hmm. There's a few conspicuous absences uh, in the book you. of people that you know are talked about a lot, but aren't there? Uh, Kurt Loder jumps to mind. Oh yeah, he, he's uh, David Fincher, someone that I yes. knew. David Fincher was a music video director. I didn't realize he was the music video director. I, I think of all you know, we we tried hard to get you know Madonna and David Lee Roth and people, and I think I, I do think 
in all accounts, they're all well they're all well accounted for in the book. There's mm-hmm. plenty of people talking about Madonna who worked with her very directly, and 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 you know it remains to be seen if Madonna would have been forthcoming about the things we wanted her to be forthcoming about. I, I'm I'm sad that we didn't get Fincher, and I'm sad we didn't get Michael Bay, mm. because the story of the company they helped found, or at least Fincher did, propaganda is an important part of the story. Yeah, that's a chapter. And 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 those guys really uh, hated each other, and and I'm sure they still do. Um, and so there was actual. They make like the. They're pretty much the opposite right, they are in, the in the cinema of, world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so it was. It was too bad that we couldn't get either of them to dish about the other. Kurt Loder sent us back an email saying, uh, "I know." Uh, he, he actually sent it to Craig. He said, "Craig, I know your work. I know Rob's work, and I don't think he meant that in a complimentary kind of way." Uh, I know the kind of stories that go into these books, and I'm not a kiss-and-tell kind of guy, which I thought was pretty ironic. The guy who did interviews didn't want to be interviewed. Probably just means he's writing a book. <laughs> with, Ol- with Ola Ray. <laughs> well, he's been there forever, too. I mean, like, if anyone's got a perspective on it. It's yeah, gonna, it's he's been be- there since since eighty six. He was the reason that he was one of the reasons the original VJs quit or got fired. Yeah, and and they hate him for that. They hate Kurt Loder because he took away all their cred. One thing that I took away from the book was just all the things that MTV had changed. Because I didn't, I was, uh, I only knew MTV myself growing up in the eighties and nineties. Like, I the book towards the end starts to be where I'm cognizant of MTV, where I'm twelve and thirteen. Uh, so I didn't really realize the impact it had on just. Music videos, on advertising, uh, on te- television itself. Fox started as something of a response to MTV. All these different industries that they changed. Was what else did MTV change besides the obvious? But Hollywood, big Hollywood, and also independent films. Uh, it's fair to say that they changed comedy. I'm not sure there would have been a Comedy yeah. Central as quickly as there was. Uh, at, you know, if not for MTV, they launched John Stewart's career. They launched Ben Stiller's career. I think even when you get down to the technical they launched Pauly Shore's career. I mean, let's not leave Pauly Shore out. Two Julie Browns. A lot of technical things too, like the editing, just editing, just editing itself a film like was sort of developed um, Well, definitely a style. I mean, yeah. a- advertisers aped it, all, you know, they still do. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I think it's fair to say that that you know, Bay and Fincher are probably the two most influential directors working in Hollywood right now. You know, oh wow, I didn't think about that. Well, if you think you've got, you've got like your cool classy guy and then you've got your explosions dude. Mm-hmm. You know, and both are both are big box office pretty much. Um, and they both are in some ways they're the you know, they're the twin pillars of MTV style in in the late 80s. And, and, this and they is, both got their start making, you know, really got their start making music videos. I mean, Fincher and Bay's I mean, the first Michael Bay video was a Donny Osmond comeback video. And that's that's how he made his bones. And Fincher made his bones doing terrible videos by horrible uh, hard rock bands. The Hooters. The Hooters, the Outfield. Uh-huh. Like third tier. I like the Outfield. But, but, but the fourth <laughs> single from yeah. third tier bands was all I Fincher can, I got. can only name two Outfield songs. Maybe only one. The, Fincher and Bay also symbolize a, an interesting change in, in the, uh, the narrative of, of MTV. In the beginning, the, the people who directed music videos were mostly a bunch of freaks. Uh, they, they were people who hadn't succeeded at anything else in life. It wasn't a career. It was just a thing you did because it looked like fun. Uh, it was challenging. There were no rules. You could work for 36 hours straight and then see your video up on MTV four weeks later. And gradually over the course of the 80s, a, a professionalism begins to seep in where now – Making videos isn't a thing in itself. It's a career move for a director. And so in, in the beginning, uh, uh, you know, people love to say videos were just advertisements. Well, they were fantastic advertisements for a song, an album, a band, a way of life. And then they, they developed into advertisements for the directors, which to me created a kind of a conflict of interest. The directors weren't trying to make the bands look mm-hmm. good. They were trying to make themselves look good. So some studio would give them $40 million. When does that shift happen, approximately, in MTV's lifespan? Late 80s, it begins to happen. With, with Guns N' Roses might have been sort of, you know, after Michael Jackson transformed the budget 
you know, Michael Jackson spent uh, uh, almost a million dollars, let's say, on Thriller. When the video before it, like the most expensive video prior to that, may was maybe was eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So he just, you know, it was, and and no one even caught up to Michael Jackson and the amount of money he spent. Not even Madonna, really, until Guns N' Roses, and just like blew it out of the water. I was kind of surprised, uh, speaking of things you love when you're 13, that the November Rain video wasn't more fondly remembered. Because I'm like, yeah, that's the, that's the greatest video. Who, who doesn't fondly remember that? Well, some people... Th- the the director be, doesn't, the, but... Yeah, there seemed to be some concern that uh, it made no sense and was very yeah. um, well, self, very indulgent. I, I think it's easy to be uh, in love with November Rain if you've never spent five days waiting for Axl Rose to show up. Mm-hmm. Probably that ruins some of the um, some of the glamour of it. You know, MTV also invented Spring Break, I think, and and they certainly reinvented reality television. Yeah, that's. I mean, one. you know, which is for better or for worse, that maybe is their biggest cultural you know footprint of all. Spring Break is another story about how a powerful MTV became. They decided they wanted to start covering Spring Break because it was the youth audience. It was their viewers. There were beer sponsors involved. Yeah, I got the impression from the book that it was money, that, that yeah. which is, is so backwards that it's advertising, the boring thing that got them to spring break. Sure. Well, MTV wasn't – they were selling advertising. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, the, the shows were just an excuse to sell advertisements. But the spring break at that point uh, was held annually in um, Fort Lauderdale. And MTV approached the uh, the government of Fort Lauderdale, and they weren't interested in cooperating. So the MTV went to Daytona Beach, and they talked to some politicians there. Daytona Beach was dying to have spring break because it meant a substantial amount of revenue. And so MTV forcibly moved spring break to Daytona Beach because Daytona, Daytona Beach officials wanted to get into bed with them. And now Daytona Beach is still, I think, probably primarily associated with Spring Break, to me anyway. Yeah. Uh, Flashing forward to the end of MTV, I mean, or to the end of the music video era on MTV, I think you guys, uh, in the book, it's a pretty thorough case on why they don't show music videos anymore. I don't think they should show music videos anymore. I think Michael Ian Black actually says it's that there's a, a better way to do it now with the internet and all these advertising. It's just such a thorough case on why... They shouldn't be making music videos anymore. So I don't want to talk about that. What I do want to talk about is what is MTV now? Like, how would you describe what it's become? It's a youth culture channel. No more, nothing more, nothing less. The, you know, they, whenever they try to, I mean, they, was it a, a year or so ago where they, um, they took the M out of the, was it, they took no, the they, music out of the. They took music out of MTV. It's right. no longer music television. Right. It's, it's just now called just MTV. MTV. Yeah. So I'd say that when they go back and try to put the music back into MTV, like when the Video Music Awards comes around every mm-hmm. year and things like that, that's when I think it rings really false. I think it rings much truer when now when they're straight teen mom, you know, Jersey Shore all the time, uh, and and that's what the, that's what the audience wants. But I think when they try to sort of mash it up and go back to the way it was and try to show the record war- the record companies and and their audience that they're still rock and roll, that they still have the rock and roll spirit, and and they're still kind of caretakers of a certain kind of liberal rock and roll point of view. To me, that's when it seems really shallow and, and forced. That's something else MTV did first, is kind of giving up their station identity. Now, if you look like TLC is obviously not about learning anymore. Yeah. Uh, all these channels, history that's channels, true. kind of moved away from that stuff. MTV was the first to like... Whatever sort of works. make a lot more money yeah, doing exactly whatever works. The, the initial thought at MTV was that the brand was music videos. But music videos weren't making enough money for the network. And so there were some people there who began to question, is the brand music videos or is it youth culture? And if it's youth culture, couldn't we break into um, a quiz show that's kind of like other quiz shows on TV except – deliberately stupid and unpredictable and has Colin Quinn singing. And that's a that's a key moment when uh, network executives realize that they can't just be about music videos. And when they, in 92, when they covered the the, the Clinton election. Right. And they mm-hmm. got, you know, pretty involved in Rock the Vote. And that was another moment where they, you know, where they really looked at Rolling Stone magazine as, as kind of their, their model. Which, which is funny, by the way, because Rolling Stone magazine hated MTV right. and ripped them apart at every opportunity. But the way that Rolling Stone pivoted from music and to kind of popular culture and youth culture, that's what MTV thought they could do, and they were right. I mean, so many people have complained so much over the years about them not showing music videos anymore. 
But if they didn't stop showing music videos when they did, they'd be out of business right now because no one would be watching a state. I mean, putting aside the advertising and how, you know, you can't keep people for a half hour chunk when you're giving them three minute things, which they may or may not like all of them. Uh, just put it, so putting aside the business concerns, if they were just showing music videos, that game's obviously moved to the internet, and they'd be out of mm-hmm. business right now. But it, it is interesting, though, like, I mean, not to bring up another internet company, but if you think of something like BuzzFeed, right, mm-hmm. which started by just having all this free content, like aggregating everybody else's stuff, and now they want, now they're starting to do original content. So that was sort of, the, you know, and they have to pay for it. And that was sort of because they want it to be a little classier, and they want to have some more control, I guess, over their... I mean, College Humor's done that, too. Right. And so MTV was in that same position. And, you know, they had the first round of founders uh, tried to buy the company and lost. They lost on an IPO, so they all quit, basically, to do other things. And, and a couple of people who had been there, Tom Freston and Judy McGrath, began take, they took charge. And Doug Herzog, who now runs Comedy Central and, and MTV Networks, he was kind of a guy who was in charge of long-form programming. And they decided that they needed to control the programming and not just rely on music videos. Because when Thriller was a big hit in 1983, their ratings were through the roof for MTV. It was fantastic. But Thriller didn't ever come along again. And there was no, you know, and and they were at the whim of, you know, if Michael Jackson or Prince decided to go on tour instead of release a record and make a video, then their ratings suffered. And they decided we have to create, not just for the reason that you said, which is accurate, that they needed a narrative to keep viewers tuned in, not just three minutes at a time, but 30 minutes at a time. But they also wanted to be able to control their own production and put out shows when they felt like it. And so that's what they did with Remote Control First and then Club MTV. And then, you know, that later really morphed into Beavis and Butthead and Real World. They, they were brilliantly unsentimental about uh, talent. There are people, you know, Martha Quinn got five years. AHA got six months. Um, Tony Katane got nine months. But MTV would take a, a, a band or a song or a, 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 a someone on air and exploit them absolutely fully for a short period of time. And then the person would say, I want to raise. And MTV would say, well, you can't have one. And they'd find somebody else. It's really fun. One of the, I think one of the chapters I like is the grunge chapter, mm-hmm. which, and it's been well documented, but it's just fun to hear both sides of it. But the, you know, the kind of geshry that goes up when you interview the metal guys um, about what happened at MTV when MTV discovered Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And they knew instant. I mean, they say it now, but I really do think it's true. They knew instantly, basically, that they were out of a job, even if it didn't turn out to be exactly true. And MTV continued to play, you know, Ugly Kid Joe videos and, you know, hard rock videos with metal, I mean, with Nirvana and grunge. But still, they knew that the hair metal era was over. And, and you know, you could, you, there, there are all kinds of stories where uh, guys from Warren offer program executives at MTV, like their credit card, like, here, t- I'll give you whatever you want, just please play my videos. I've been living life at such a you know fantastic rate, I can't bear to go back to the way it was, but it was too late. Okay, so I'm a little, when I, again, like going back to 12 or 13, I remember Kurt Cobain dying. I remember that, and that was like the first time that Nirvana kind of entered my world. I was just a little too young for it. So how was it, and don't get me wrong, Nirvana is obviously very good, but what was it that made it so immediately obvious that it was a title change? Well, it's a bunch of different factors to be boring about. I mean, I think one is that the, I mean. My favorite thing, when someone says to be boring about on their show, it's like my favorite <laughs> you love part. that? I love Click. the technical details. Click. No, 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 I really uh, do. I, well, I, I think was that means say, you, you know, say the a, most interesting thing. I want to hear. A, you know, they were on Geffen Records. So mm-hmm. they had a they had a lot of backing behind them. They were Geffen Records was the label best uh, capable of promoting videos. Such an unromantic reason, right? Like, right. So that so that is not to be discounted. Kurt Cobain loved had a great sense of of visuals. I mean, it's, it's, Teen Spirit's a great song, uh, and he knew exactly what he wanted out of the video, to the point where the the director in the book says, "Yeah, Kurt hated me. He hated mm-hmm. me." And they fired him. I mean, basically, Kurt Cobain fired after the video was made and was being edited. Kurt Cobain, the record company, fired the the uh, director Sam Bear from the video because Sam Bear wanted to put two minutes of the janitor and like ten seconds of Kurt Cobain. And he and and Kurt Cobain, while he may have been a shy, reclusive, you know, kind of tormented dude, knew that he was the star of the video. And so he's like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have the janitor be the star of the video. And so Kurt knew exactly what he wanted out of the visuals. And you know every every musical cycle has its natural expiration date, and hair metal had really been like a huge part of MTV from '84 
Yeah. You know, in fits and starts from 84 to like 91. And and it was the most, and as far as rock went, you know, alternative rock, Sinead and R.E.M. and Depeche Mode, even you 2 those artists can only capture the imagination of like a suburban teenage male so much. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't really, they didn't rock as hard as like kids wanted. And, and Nirvana and Pearl Jam rocked every bit as hard as, as Poison or harder than Poison and Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. And and you two was not going to uh, put a, a token half dressed female in the video just because they had no other idea. Bands like U two and REM had higher aspirations for their videos, and MTV benefited from then uh, Rat right, or but not, Poison. Not the Nirvana necessarily. Oh no 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 yeah. no no. No, but I was talking about the change from mm-hmm. hair metal. It's just it seems. Uh, I mean, maybe part of it's hindsight, but such an instant like you're reading. All uh, how it was the greatest and the cocaine was flowing and then just one band comes along and they're, it's over. Well, here, here's one more thing about Nirvana. Uh, there's a notion that they were an anti-MTV band because they were a punk rock band. And really, that's just not true. Kurt Cobain loved making videos. He might not have loved being on the set, but he got very involved in imagining them, drawing different scenarios. They uh, The band appeared... Uh, on an MTV Unplugged, on Headbangers Ball, on the Video Music Awards. And not just that, and, but he had, I'm sorry, I was going to say, he had a very close relationship with one of the executives at MTV, Amy Finnerty. Yeah. I mean, you know, they were buddies. And Nirvana worked MTV the same way Whitesnake had. They were just a little more subtle about it, maybe? Well, they they certainly were less crass about it, and they, and they made completely different videos. Right. But but they weren't a band that succeeded in spite of MTV. They were a band that succeeded in large part because of MTV. You guys are clearly huge music fans. Do you still watch music videos? I, I still watch video. I mean, part of my job as a still in the like, editing music site is watching videos. And... and while there isn't a part of me that thinks MTV should be playing music videos, I do, I do, um, I, I somewhat mourn the reduction of videos to my YouTube, you know, to my browser screen. Do you think I, videos I, are better or worse or the same as they ever were? I think they're worse. They're worse. Really? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's not just that the videos are worse. The experience of being a fan of videos uh, is that's worse. True. Yeah. Because there's no... Oh my God! Did you see last night? MTV debuted the new Def Leppard video. Wasn't that sick? I, well, I guess the equivalent of that would be like when I want to say, "Okay, go." They have these kind of gimmicky videos, but like there are music videos that can sure. make a splash, and you know they're on every blog, and it, it that would great probably ones, be the modern day. But most, but most of the time, they always have to have the same gimmick because they know that you're you're online at work, and all they all they're designed to do is get you to the end of the video. So they have to come up with incredibly elaborate ruses to get you to the three-minute point. So, okay, go are geniuses at it. You know, the Rube Goldberg thing is fantastic. You, but that's that's what's required now. Is, mm-hmm. You know, LCD Sound System had that great video for was it for Drunk Girls or, where like it was you have to wait to the end to see what happens. Um, those are the most effective videos now online. But I'm not sure that should be like the the be all end all of music video making. But without MTV or us, you know, I mean, Puffy starting. Diddy starting a music video network. Oh yeah, a black you know an urban music video network. Maybe that'll up the uh, the level of hip hop videos or R and B videos. What's your take on that? Do you think that has a chance of succeeding? No, I don't, because I don't think anyone <laughs> wants to watch music videos on television anymore. So so we're not going to do an oral history of <laughs> Revolt Puff Daddy's uh, music video channel. I would think that maybe just because the tools are so much more accessible and you don't have to get lucky to get airtime, you can if your video is good, you know, it'll get out there and get seen that there's just it's maybe a more exciting area just cuz people can bubble up from nowhere. Well, that's, you know, that's true for all music you could say now, but mm-hmm. the the uh, the there'll never be another November rain. Yeah. You know, no one's going to sink like, you know, a million and a half or 2 million dollars into this crazy ridiculous Incoherent, spectacular music video, and throw Stephanie Seymour off a. No, they threw the guitar off the cliff. They put Stephanie right, and Seymour have like, and have five days of just Slash playing on a completely different location in front of a church while helicopters circle from above with the cameras. It's just not ever gonna, you know. Those, there's not enough cocaine in the world. Ah, those were the good old days. Maybe for Chinese democracy, <laughs> they'll they'll all get back together and do a video for it. Uh, would would you say that maybe? There's obviously no new MTV, but maybe if there is one, 
It's YouTube? Could it possibly be YouTube? Because I think that YouTube has the potential to change just as many things as MTV did. Advertising, uh, culture, all politics, all these sorts of things. I don't really see YouTube changing fashion uh, or Hollywood. I, I don't think it can be as influential. And it, it's because when you're watching YouTube, you're having an isolated experience from other people who are watching YouTube. Uh, but you have a button. You can. You're like. There's a, a button, and there's like several varieties of them to tell everyone you know what you're but, watching. Well, right yeah, but but with MTV, there were two million teenagers across the nation who were watching the same videos at exactly the same moment. There, there was a single transmission source, as opposed to it being disparate and individualized. I also think that what what MTV really created was, let's just say, which I think is fair, they created the modern day music video. Yeah. Right. And that's and that's an, an aesthetic form in and of itself and a really fantastic one, I think. And it's it's sort of delirious and postmodern and it's crazy to watch and things don't have to connect. And they have all kinds of cliches that now, you know, then we loved, but now we love for different reasons. Um, you know, I think if any if there's a if there's a form that YouTube created, it's kind of like the dude sitting in his room uh, covering a song by Adele or mm -hmm. covering a song by Katy Perry and trying to get discovered. And I not to me, that's not just. As far as art goes, you know, quote unquote art, I don't think that's nearly the same. Um, and so, and I don't, and I, because I think that's what it's really about. It's not just a distribution network, it's about the form that the distribution network helped to create. And, you know, I'd much prefer to watch, uh, you know, a Duran Duran Hungry Like the Wolf than, uh, you know, somebody's home bedroom video of them singing a new Lady Gaga song. It, and I think that is really the predominant thing that YouTube has created is the access that any musician or or wannabe musician has to, to everyone, and that's you know, and the democratizing thing is a great thing. Yeah. But as far as from from my selfish you know consumer perspective, that doesn't equal what MTV created. Even Rebecca Black, who is probably the single biggest YouTube phenomenon in terms of a music video, that's nothing compared to a Van Halen video debuting in 1985. Well, I think I would probably compare Rebecca Black's kind of a unique, a unique situation. Uh, I guess I guess because she sucks. It well, sucks in like, a bad way. Would it, well, MTV would have never played it because she was like, yeah, sucks in. Well, it sucks in a good way, I guess. But like, it was just that's like lightning in a bottle, Rebecca. Black. I'm just saying it's not really like YouTube isn't yet. It hasn't yet outside of like, maybe this isn't fair, but outside of like cute little kitty cat videos, and you know, mm. kids singing in their bedroom. I don't really think those are signature aesthetic, uh, you know, accomplishments. And those are really the most popular, certainly, aesthetic mm -hmm. ac accomplishments or form that YouTube's created. I mean, that might not, um, my, my dive into YouTube there might not be that as deep. But still, it feels like that's predominantly what it traffics in and what people like most about it. You know, what, what, it, what it shares in common with MTV is that it, it venerates a three-minute form. It's a three-minute visual form. You know, the attention span hasn't changed really from MTV days in 1982 to YouTube days. People still seem to want to watch, thing or did then and do now, and everything changed in between, go back to watching some kind of three-minute video. Can you imagine if there had been a Twitter in 1986 when MTV was debuting new White Snake videos? I mean, the Twitter would have exploded. The internet would have crashed. I remember when like Michael Jackson videos premiered, and like, that went to network TV like when they did. And the one I'm thinking of is black and white. Right, mm -hmm. that was on network. That premiered on Fox as opposed to MTV. I, I think they showed it once in its entirety. Uh, I think like after in the its Simpsons entirety. or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that story about how Michael Jackson showed up and uh, stopped the meeting because of the Simpsons were on too. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, I, I thought you were going to talk about the, the story John Landis uh, tells where he's directing Black or White uh, and Michael keeps grabbing his junk. And and Landis yells, "Cut, cut Michael! What are you doing?" Well, that's specific. That's specifically. I was a little confused about that. That's like the outro of Black and White that you never see anymore, there's right? A, Where there's he's like, an edited. There's a full length version. There's like three different versions of that song. The because the, the full length one. This it, this was around when like Twitter and the internet were around. Because I, I remember the next day everyone talking about because there's that music video, the one we mostly people remember and like with the George Wendt and Macaulay Culkin and all the different cultures. Yeah. Well, and then the and then the face morphing at the end. It oh, was like yeah. five videos in one that video. And, but then after the song, there was this segment where Michael Jackson ran around and was smashing cars and grabbing. That's right. the part John Landis is referring to. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that was unplanned. Michael Jackson just showed up and was like, you know, it'd be cool. 
be it would be cool if I grabbed my dick. <laughs> and like did not and, inform the director that like he had this two minute outro for the video where he was smashing cars and grabbing his dick. And I, I think Michael Jackson did what he wanted to, you know, at that point in his career. And and John Landis said in the book says very very deadpan. Uh, Michael, why are you doing that? Michael says, well, uh, Prince does it. Madonna does it. And John Landis says, you're not Prince. You're not Madonna. You're Mickey Mouse. Stop touching your dick. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of all these things changing and all, you know, media being disrupted, books. Books have been with us for a while. And when I was reading this book, I really wanted to be reading it on an iPad. And I wanted to, like, click, you know, if I saw a musician... When you talk about a video, I want to be watching that video. When I see someone who there's an index, um, you know, to help you remember who's who. But I want to I want to go to the Wikipedia page for someone, take a little side tour. Do you guys ever consider doing anything like that? Uh, you, you know, Jeff, I I want a hovercraft, but, <laughs> but I don't have one. Uh, the, unfortunately, the technology just doesn't exist yet. In an ideal world, yeah, you would be able to read the book. The, uh, when each video is is mentioned. There'd be a link. You just tap on the link, and the video comes up. Uh, but I think we're we're a few years away from. Well, I mean, it could be done for you know. It, it would be easier for the iPad certainly. I, think... um, I mean, there's elect- there's ebook versions, of course, of uh, you know, on Kindle and mm-hmm. iBooks, or if I want my MTV. But it's not as interactive as one might like. Yeah, I think that you could probably do it technologically. Like, I think the pieces are there that if you wanted, to, you could build it. I think it's probably more of a business thing where. Then does that version compete with this one? Even if you're embedding YouTube, well, the book's and you're long actually... enough as it is, too. Right, yeah. Yeah, it, t- it takes you. But I, there's something about reading about music. Whenever I read about a song, I'm like, yeah, that's the best song. I got to be listening right. to that song right now. I, I like to think that our book has been uh, very profitable for YouTube. Maybe more profitable for them than it was for us. <laughs> so, well, after this podcast, we'll rake in the... It's sending a lot of people to YouTube to watch the videos we When you go about. and look at those music videos on YouTube, they all have millions and millions right. of views. Well, that's, the, that's you know, that's, that's not a dirty secret, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I can't remember what the percentage was, but like 40% of all YouTube views are music videos. Oh, really? So I'm like, I mean, I, I'm... Uh, Estimating. Yeah, right, but, but it's, a, it's a ridiculously high number. Um, that's why you know. That's why Vivo is is such a phenomenon now. Because really, what people want to do, they want to go back and watch the music videos they remember from MTV. And again, Vivo isn't really a technology thing. It was more of a business idea of let's right. loop all these together and sell ads. Well, they, well, the ones. labels didn't want YouTube to reap all the advertising profits. Very exciting news. Since I booked you guys, I just read today is Monday. I read on Friday, I think, that this book is what? going to be a movie. I haven't heard about that. Uh. Well, we, as of the time we're talking, a, a contract has not been signed yet. But uh, you should tell someone that because I am seeing a lot of stories about <laughs> it. Sony and Brett Ratner have uh, made it very clear that they're excited about adapting this into uh, a movie, and we're excited about having them do it. And, and Brett Ratner, of course, uh, another director who came from music videos. Yep. Yeah, I think probably got to start. Yeah, yeah, got to start in music videos. Mm-hmm. Can you say anything more about that? Like what your what really format nothing. the movie might take? Blu-ray, we think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Craig and I have been promised cameos as Hollow Notes. That'd be that, amazing. That was the main thing we wanted out of this. I have a theory on com- complete sidetrack. If Hollow Notes didn't have those mustaches, they'd get twice as much respect. What do you guys think? Hmm. I, I think because they get a lot. I mean, people like Hall Notes. They get a lot of respect. I think even recently they've come back a little more. But I think if well, they Hall didn't have really, those Hall mustaches, Hall didn't have a mustache they, when he was at his the peak of his. He, power, he occasionally he? had a mustache, but but mainly no. I, they they looked a little too much like Starsky and Hutch. I, I think to to really get uh, to get a lot of credit mm-hmm. as musicians. Do you think uh, for this movie you get like someone to play the Madonna part? Someone like you? Is this the type of thing where you have? Cameos is probably. I think. You know? I think most of the b- movie, as far as it's been explained to us, kind of would be centered on the business startup on you know in a sort of social network way. So it, it's about you know these crazy visionaries, Bob Pittman, John Lack, John Sykes, Les Garland, all the guys who came up with the idea, and trying to put it together, and then all the hurdles they faced, and they were they were like monumental ones, and then turning points like the I Want My MTV campaign, which was a you know, an incredibly famous and important advertising campaign, and not just for advertising, but for the for the fate of the network. And then Michael Jackson, who also really essentially saved the network as well when they finally deigned to air his videos. And then up to maybe a point where the initial wave of executives leave. So, you know, I, I mean, there. I hope there'll be a flock of se- you know someone dressed as Mike Score from a flock of seagulls. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure the soundtrack will be awesome. Yeah, it will be a good soundtrack. But I think it'll mostly center around you know the, the MTV. 
network, and a little less so, you know, the, we're not going to chronicle every, uh, every filming of every music video, sadly. But there, there has to be somebody who has a, a four-minute walk-on as Michael Jackson. Sure, sure. And, and that would be a huge part, of, you know, that, that's the fun of the casting. Donald Who's, Glover. Who, Donald uh-huh. Glover. Yeah. I'm already casting it. Okay. With, with the Jerry Curls? Yeah. Do you guys have any plans to write another book? We do. Uh, there are a few ideas that we're uh, kicking around uh, and that are kicking us back, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that the sequel won't be a VH1 uh, oral VH1's, history. It's in, it's CMT? in here. <laughs> no, the CMT no, story? No, it's not. Would it be music? Be, uh, no. There, there is a music idea we're, we're talking about. Um, there's the, the one we're focusing on is a larger pop culture uh, story. Cool. Guys, I enjoyed this book so much. I do not tweet at the authors of every book I read and ask them to come on this show. And if you ask the people that I see every day, I, like, bring it up in casual conversation just all the time. Like, oh, that's, you know, that's, like, the thing in the book that I read. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. Everyone should check it out. The book is I Want My MTV. It's on Kindle and iTunes and old-fashioned paper for now. Anything else we can plug? Uh, Well, I edit a site called (laughs) popdust.com, which I'd like everyone to invest in and visit. It's a pop music site. Popdust.com. I'll be here all week. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the show, guys. Thanks for having us, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. That is it for this week's episode. Enhanced Edition listeners, don't forget about our little contest. Unenhanced Edition listeners, go fuck yourselves. I'm just kidding. You guys are cool, too. Uh, You know the drill. Say it with me. Yell it with me. No matter where you are, if you're in public, the subway, your car, I want you to yell it with me. You can follow me at twitter.com slash jeffrubinjeffrubin, uh, my Facebook fan page, my Tumblr, which is jeffrubinjeffrubin.com, and at youtube.com slash jeffrubinjeffrubin. Thank you so much for listening. You are all wonderful. Bye.